Before we delve into this last topic, do you have any questions? Maybe do a little brief Q&A at the beginning. Do you have any, any questions left over from the first talk about created body and, or the second talk on the gendered body? Anything that uh, you may be talking about amongst yourselves or are wondering about you want to ask? Yes, all the way in the back. Yep. Is that verse in your Bible? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, how I think about my... So, yeah. Um, are, is the body and the soul, are they equal in importance? And what do you do with First Timothy chapter 4? Talks about, Paul talks about physical discipline is of some value, but godliness is of ultimate value both in this life and in the life to come. So the way I view myself, I view myself as a person created in the image of God, and I'm a complex, that is, body and soul, body and spirit, body, soul, and spirit, however you want to parse it out. I'm both material and immaterial. That's the way God has designed me. And I can't, in my futile attempts, say, this is my soul doing its thing, and this is my body doing it, its thing. This is Greg Allison worshiping the Lord, interacting, teaching you, enjoying relationships, cheering on my Chicago Cubs, who are lost two in a row. Right? So I'm a, I'm a person, and I don't know how to parse out. You know, um, I can't look at Gavin over here and say, wow, your soul is really functioning well. I, I can't make that. So I, I see us as a complex unity. So we're a body and soul unity in this life. And that's the way God created us. And I think if Adam and Eve had retained their integrity, they had not fallen, they would have participated. They would have gone to the tree of life and by God's grace uh, been kept in uh, existence in life forever. Not because... They had an immortal soul, but because God would nourish them from the tree of life and he would hold them in existence for all eternity. So the intermediate state, when we become unzipped, so my body is sloughed off, but I, immaterial Greg Allison, disembodied, continue to exist, that never would have happened to Adam and Eve. They would never have died. They would have never experienced the separation of their body and soul. So this is why I say the intermediate state, it's not the way it's supposed to be. So I look at my future in the intermediate state and I say, Greg Allison will be there without his body. And that's just completely weird. But my, I know I will long for, I will anticipate my resurrection body. And once again, I will be Greg Allison, proper state of my existence is embodiment. I will be that complex unity of body and soul, worshiping the Lord, enjoying fellowship forever. That's how I look at it. So is one more important than the other? I, I can't be a full person without both. What about Paul's exhortation to Timothy? Godliness is the most important thing. Remember I said our identity is image-bearing, and the pursuit that we should all uh, run after is Christ-likeness. Godliness is, is about that. And, and that godliness is beneficial in this life and forever. It's an eternal uh, value and virtue. But physical exercise has a place, not in the future life, but in this life. So my father, who died a few years ago, was a diabetic. Um, my brother, who's still alive, he's a diabetic. I am ripe <laughs> right, for diabetes. So I swim as often as I can, right? Every day is what I, what I shoot for. Because I need to exercise right and eat right. That, those are doctor's orders in order to stave off diabetes. So it's important for me 
to do that, I have to engage in physical discipline, physical exercise, proper nutrition, because not for their own sake, but to be the kind of person that can respond to God's call in any second of my life. I want to be fit in every way, spiritual, mental, the four areas that Terry talks about. I want to be faithful in all those areas so that I am fit for God's call. That's how I look at, at this. Go ahead. Yep. So, um, Jesus came to earth in a gendered body. He did. Yeah. He prayed to the Father. He does not have a gendered body. He does he not. Speak to the no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Where's uh, Aaron Lewis? <laughs> no, he's shaking his head. So, so God is not gendered. Um, we know that from scripture, God is immaterial, no one can see God, he's a spiritual existence. And we also know he's, he's not gendered because God doesn't have a body. Remember we talked about gender maps onto embodiedness. God isn't embodied, so there's no gender there. That's true of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternity, right? 2,000 years ago, the Son, not the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son came on and took on human nature. He became incarnate. He became embodied. But, I mean, he had a human mind, human feelings, sentiments, human will, motivations, all like that. But he had a human body, right? So necessarily, being a human being and embodied, he has to have a gender. Now, there are good reasons why he became a male, one of which is he is the second Adam, undoing the first Adam. And because he's the son of the father, that doesn't talk about a physical relationship, but an eternal relationship. So it's right for the son to take on uh, male gender. So can you as a female, can Jesus sympathize with you? Can you uh, understand Jesus? Yes, because you and Jesus have the very same common human capacities and common human properties. You are alike. He expressed his in male uh, ways. You express yours in female ways, but you share rationality, cognition, memory, imagination, feelings, sentiments, motivations, purposing, will, volition, and you gentleness and kindness and courage and protectiveness, just like Jesus did. So he can sympathize with you. You can turn to him as your high priest because he does know who you are and what you're like. Okay, follow up. So he prayed to the Father as Sorry, the Father yeah. because, because... Eternally, he's the son of the Father. Do you know about eternal generation? Have you ever heard that expression? So, okay. <laughs> um, so there is a unique eternal relationship between the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity. We call that eternal generation. The Father eternally grants to the second person his life as the son, his sonship life. So there's this unique, wonderful, uh, particular, eternal relationship between the two that becomes expressed in the incarnation. The son submits to the father, um, and the son prays to the father. And then we throw in the third dude, the Holy Spirit, but that's another talk. <laughs> Ready for uh, talk number three, which is going to be on, um, in light of our created body and gendered body, how do we think about, how do we react to, how do we minister in contexts where there's gender dysphoria or gender incongruence and even uh, transgenderism? That's the focus I want for this third talk. A couple months ago, uh, my wife needed a new computer, and so we went to Best Buy, and we picked out a computer that she really likes. And uh, we were checking out, and, and the person that checked us out, um, we were mystified, because this person had a beard, hands like a man, and a deep voice. But his mannerisms, his makeup and his clothes made him seem like a woman. So we didn't know how to approach this. Is he a man or is he a woman? 
This is confusion for my wife and me, but this is becoming a very prominent phenomenon in our society. A couple weeks ago, I was speaking on transgenderism, and I was talking to a 12-year-old girl, and I said, have you ever heard of a furry? She goes, yes, I'm a furry. Meow, meow. And I said, what does that mean to you? I love cats. I go, does that make you a furry? Do you participate in school like, using your human voice? Oh, yeah. I think she's even confused what a furry would be. Transspeciesism, a human being feeling, perceiving, in this case, herself as a cat. I don't share these examples for shock value or to demean these people. It, it's to point out that just even dial the time back uh, a decade ago, and this was not even a conversation. It was not something that we would experience going to Best Buy or talking with a 12-year-old girl. So we are in a particular cultural context where we wrestle with sex and gender. There's a looming and disconcerting contemporary problem detaching maleness from femaleness. Sorry, maleness and femaleness from biological sex. The problem is detaching maleness and femaleness from biological sex. XY or XX. Or, as the current notion has it, sex is that which is assigned at birth. Sex is that which appears on your birth certificate. In place of this givenness of sex, there is now genderness. One's self-identification as either male or female, regardless of one's sexed or gendered or biological identity. An example of the elevation of gender above sex, Jessica Savano, changed from being a man to being a woman. Her failed Kickstarter campaign sought financial backing for a documentary which would be titled, I Am Not My Body. That motto completely contradicts the very first thing we talked about Friday night. And it represents a detachment of maleness and femaleness from biological sex. Before transgenderism and, and uh, other matters that we'll talk about in a few minutes, I want to think about gender dysphoria or gender identity confusion. What do we mean by gender dysphoria, by gender confusion, identity confusion? The tension that a person feels when their, ex their gender experience, their gender identity doesn't correspond to their biological sex. So this tension, this struggle that they feel, that we call gender dysphoria or gender identity confusion. And this can express itself everywhere from cross-dressing to sex reassignment surgery. An example of this would be Charity Bono, daughter of Sonny and Cher, who became Chaz Bono, so this is a biological woman transitioning into a man, or vice versa, a biological man into a woman, Bruce Jenner, for whom I cheered in the Olympics as he ran and competed in the decathlon. He won the championship, the Olympic medal, who in 2015 came out in Vanity Fair cover of the magazine as Caitlyn Jenner. Where's our doctor? In rare cases, a child is born with an ambiguous gender, and rarely, very rarely, it's unclear whether this child is male or female. One form of this is called intersex. So there are intersex conditions. This ambiguous gender results from a genetic abnormality. Instead of XY or XX, it may be XXY or XYY. Uh, and there can be ambiguity. 
those who champion ideologically uh, transgenderism will say about 1.7% of our population has some kind of intersex condition, 1.7%. Now, we think that's low, but it's still a significant uh, percentage. What this ideology does not uncover, does not talk about, is that, okay, let's grant 1.7% of our population has some kind of intersex condition, and only 1% of that 1%, uh, 1.7%, only 1%, is there ever gender ambiguity? It's unclear whether one is a boy or a girl, a man or a woman. So ideologically, transgenderism points to intersex to say, see, there's a spectrum. It's not just binary, male or female, but there's this spectrum. I, I beg to disagree that yes, in very rare cases, there is ambiguity, but that's highly unusual. Some gender confusion is typical of adolescence, with most growing out of the confusion within a time period, particularly as they pass through puberty, as they're helped with the guidance of parents, relatives, friends, teachers, pastors, church members, and so forth. The estimate is, in terms of adolescent boys, prepubescent adolescent boys, if they're struggling with gender dysphoria, when they pass through puberty and enter into young adulthood, 98% of them uh, become comfortable with their maleness. In the case of female prepubescent adolescent, um, as they pass through puberty and enter into young adulthood, 88% feel comfortable once again with their femaleness. So this, this, these are statistics, that's just hardcore, hard cold facts, um, which, which is, can be off-putting, why are we talking about uh, statistics? It, it does help us to see it's, it's a phenomenon that takes place in adolescence, which is a very difficult period of life anyway. And again, the vast majority of both boys and girls passing through puberty, coming into adulthood, will become comfortable with their maleness and their femaleness. In any case, the experience of gender dysphoria is real, and the pain and the distress it causes should not be underestimated. But how do we respond to people who experience gender dysphoria and who are transgendered. And here I'm relying somewhat on Nancy Percy's very fine book, Love Thy Body. A diversity of opinions exists for managing, for helping cases of people with gender dysphoria. But to return to our talk last night, the starting point in my estimation is to ground this discussion biblically and theologically in the fact that God has embodied us and our body is either male or female. There is this binarity. So God has created us as male image bearers or female image bearers. That's the theological foundation from which we, from which we address this topic. It does not necessarily make the conversations any easier. It doesn't resolve the conversations that we need to have. But that's the starting point, I think, to affirm how God has created us as embodied and gendered human beings. Still, living with this incongruity between their biological sex and their gender identity requires, on their part, care, self-control, even relentless struggle. But it must be matched on our part with love, kind-heartedness, and persevering compassion on our part, who will continue even in long-term relationships with them. Many churches struggling with this uh, dismiss gender dysphoria or become embittered toward it, um, see uh, people struggling with this as irredeemable, 
I, I would like to call our churches to take a different approach, and that is Jesus-like compassion, which welcomes, though that, that does not affirm, uh, for example, transgenderism. Here are some of the extreme measures being adopted today to solve gender incongruity. They include puberty blockers, chest binding, gender-affirming hormone therapy, and sex reassignment surgery. What do I mean? Let's start with puberty blockers. Children and adolescents who experience gender dysphoria may elect to suppress puberty temporarily through puberty blockers. These blockers suppress the body's release of sex hormones, such as testosterone and estrogen, during puberty. In boys, these drugs decrease the growth of facial and body hair, prevent the deepening of their voice, suppress the growth of their penis, scrotum, and testicles, and interfere with erections. In girls, these drugs limit, the stop, limit or stop the development of their breasts and prevent the onset of menstruation. That's puberty blockers. Chest binding, girls or women who experience gender dysphoria may bind their chests to flatten or minimize the appearance of their breasts, making them look less like girls or women. That's chest binding. Gender-affirming hormone therapy, both feminizing hormone therapy and masculinizing hormone therapy, produce physical changes to secondary sex characteristics in the body so as to align one's body with one's gender identity. Feminizing hormone therapy is applied to boys or men who transition to become transgender girls or women. This therapy involves taking medicine that blocks the action of testosterone and taking estrogen that lowers the body's production of testosterone and triggers the development of fe uh, feminine secondary sex characteristics. Examples of such change include fewer erections, the development of breasts, smaller testicles, less muscle mass and strength, and less facial and body hair. Masculinizing hormone therapy is applied to girls or women who transition to transgender boys or girls. This therapy involves the taking of male hormone testosterone, which stops the menstrual cycle, lowers the ovary's ability to produce estrogen, deepens one's voice, increases facial and body hair, and increases muscle and mass strength. Those are hormones uh, that can be taken. Sex reassignment surgery or sex affirming surgery, two kinds. Feminizing surgery is applied to boys or men who transition to become transgender girls or women and may include reduction of the Adam's apple, insertion of breast implants, removal of the penis and scrotum, and construction of a vagina and labia. Masculinizing surgery is applied to girls or women who transition to become transgender boys or men and may include breast reduction or mastectomy, removal of the ovaries and uterus, and construction of a penis and scrotum. With all these measures, the hope is to make one's body conform more to one's gender identity. That is, for boys or men to appear more feminine and for girls or women to appear more masculine. Let me pause. Questions or comments of clarification at this point? Doc, do, uh, did I, two doctors, did I, are we pretty close to being all right on this? Anything you want to add? 
Yes. Some of these therapies, I mean, are they done at the same time, like puberty blockers, and then they, uh, the other hormones to make them even more masculine or more feminine? Are they done at the same time? Given to them at the same time? Usually, I see the puberty blockers will be first. And stand, stand up, yeah. From what I've seen a little bit, like puberty blockers will be first, and there's an implant that goes in the arm for that. And then sometimes it will be started on like estrogen or testosterone at the same time, but I don't know the exact nuances of that. And it depends on the age. Stand up. So I guess it depends on what age they're going to start. Like if you have a 30 year old, you know, that's starting the process versus a 12 year old starting the process. So it will depend. So obviously you're not going to give puberty blockers to somebody who's 30. So it's more probably likely to just the hormones and, and surgery. But it depends on the person. I think a lot of people just have more individualized course that they want to follow. Maybe just hormones, maybe just one kind of surgery. And it's very expensive, so it's not like people can do it. Uh, you don't. It's, uh, it's very expensive. And a new phenomenon is for detransitioning. So uh, boys or men that have transitioned to become girls or women and vice versa can detransition. Um, it's interesting, in Great Britain, the Na National Health Service is no longer uh, engaged in gender-affirming uh, uh, approach to this because there have been companies that have been sued for uh, hormone uh, replacement and sex reaffirming surgery, and they've actually become bankrupt. So, so think you want to transition to a woman, and then 10 years later you say, I'm exhausted from this, I'm gonna detransition. But your wife affirmed that, and your pastor affirmed that, and your counselor affirmed that, and your psychiatrist affirmed that, and your doctors affirmed that. You've got five or six people to sue for uh, doing what you asked them to do. And uh, so companies are now thinking there's immense financial liabilities at, at play here. My hope is that the United States will follow Great Britain. And I don't think it's a great reason for stopping, for saying we're not gonna do gender-affirming approaches anymore, but at least it works, I think, in some cases. In a sense, whatever it takes. It's not the ultimate um, solution for it, but it's helpful along the way. Yes, go ahead, stand up. I think your, are your statistics from the DSM? Yeah. So, on a global scale, though, are developing countries represented in gender dysphoria categories? Um, I, DSM-5, is that um, North American, is it USA only, or it's it's, it's what? It's not global. Okay. I'm going to guess it's a first world problem because second and third world problems get closer to survival, right. and they don't have time. A boy doesn't have time to imagine himself as a girl who's not working in the fields anymore. Uh, no, these are, the, I think, the most recent stats, the DSM-5. Oh, oh, no, no, yeah. DSM-5 is the latest permutation. That's it, American Psychiatric, yes. Yes. Yeah. American Psychiatric Association, it's, it's, there's statistics, yeah. Yeah, one more. Elizabeth, stand up. <laughs> Both of you, yeah.
later in life they are extremely hard, and you can go back and redo your bone structure and your muscle structure and things like that. So um, it's uh, a lot of the scientific community is, is saying, no, this is not really uh, good medicine. This is not good for people, and we should stop doing it. Elizabeth, add yeah, to that. So why is it that they neglect the science and say it's fine? It's a cultural way. It's an ideology. So a great book on this is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. And then there's a popular version of that, which I can't, A Strange New World. If you want to see how we arrived at this from the last several hundred years, it's a, these are magnificent books explaining why we're, where we're at. Let's keep going on some key considerations in this matter. Uh, gender, gender dysphoria is not based on science. Right? This is not a genetic reality. There are intersex conditions which are genetic realities. Gender dysphoria is not a genetic reality. Also, transgenderism is not supported by some, perhaps many, feminists. Not supported. Transgenderism not supported by some or many feminists. TERFs, T-E-R-F, trans-exclusionary radical feminists are totally against transgenderism. The Women's Liberation Front is against transgenderism. These are radical feminist groups. J.K. Rowling, anyone heard of her? She's a TERF. She is suffering persecution from right and left. Kelly J. Keene Minshul is another outspoken radical feminist. It's interesting, River Church and J.K. Rowling and Women's Liberation Front would join forces against transgenderism. Well, those are strange uh, combinations. They argue that transgenderism alienates people from their bodies. They also say any man that claims to be a woman is making a bogus claim. A man cannot possibly know what it is to be a woman because he cannot experience typical female lived experiences like estrogen onset puberty, menstruation, the possibility of pregnancy, motherhood, pervasive domination by men, mistreatment and being demeaned by men, fear of being raped, and more. So radical feminists and others standing against transgenderism because it alienates us from our body and it's impossible. 
Transgenderism is destructive of women in particular because transgender men insist on using women's bathrooms, locker rooms, showers, changing rooms in clothing stores, and competing in women's sports. This course is right in the news, right up front of the news right now. Uh, a man who is competing in women's sports, he's gone through puberty, he has a significant physical advantage, a significant advantage over women in sports. So a couple years ago, Leah Thomas, University of Pennsylvania trans swimmer, won the Ivy League championship in the 100-meter, 200-meter, and 500-meter freestyle. I'm proud of one of our Kentucky uh, women, uh, Riley Gaines, a swimmer for Kentucky. She is taking a very strong stand, saying that women's sports, Title IX, this is protect, should be, uh, women should be protected in uh, these women's sports, and men should not be allowed to be in them. What about dead naming and pronoun usage? This may be where the rubber meets the road. What do we mean by dead naming and pronoun usage? If you're not familiar with this, a dead name is the name that a transgender person was given at birth and used for the first few years or decades of his life. For example, Paul, but he no longer uses upon transitioning Pauline instead. This issue with pronoun usage, he, him, his, she, her, and so forth, the issue with pronoun uses is the choice that you and I, transgender persons, acquaintances, face, whether to use the pronouns corresponding to the dead name, Paul, so him, he, his, or to use pronouns corresponding to the transition name, Pauline, she, her. There are three views on this subject. Use the dead name and its corresponding pronouns, Paul, his, him, because to do otherwise would exhibit acceptance of transgenderism. It would belie the truth of that person's biological sex. It would promote the delusion into which the person has fallen. It would involve one in lying, and it would be capitulating to disconcerting cultural norms. That's option one. Option number two, use the transitioned name, Pauline, and its corresponding pronouns, she, her, because such usage exhibits love and respect for that transgender person. It demonstrates one's commitment to be hospitable to that person, and it avoids cutting off relationships and communication. Third option, especially if there's no personal relationship with this person, use the name with which that person introduced himself or herself and just avoid using pronouns. So you're a, an employer and you're interviewing a potential employee who introduces herself as Pauline, though you think, hmm, I'm not sure, probably was Paul, refer to that person as Pauline. You don't have a context to do otherwise. And rather than using she and her, just say, so Pauline, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Pauline, if you were in this kind of a situation, how would you respond? So three, I used to just think there are two. Someone said there's actually a third one, so I've, I've introduced that one as well. Let me pause here. Comments, questions? I, I strongly urge option one. Uh, if you do opt for option one, more than likely you will lose any ongoing relationship and communication with that person. That, that's the disadvantage of this. Any comments or thoughts so far? Yeah, go ahead. Stand up. So I'm a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Public school? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I haven't seen it a ton. 
So I, I was, I was actually going to ask the question earlier, but you presented the options. Um, option one is, in my part, what I feel I would do. It's just a very unique and kind of hostile circumstance. I just didn't know if you was. How, how old are your, are your kids? High school. Do their parents know that in your class? Yeah, so uh, one set of parents do. Um, and then sometimes I've had students say my mom and my dad don't know, which then you get into legal stuff. Um, so. I'm not a uh, teacher in a public school. Yeah. My initial reaction is to have a conversation with the parents. Because they're ultimately responsible for their kids. Yeah. And say, I'm faced with this, as you, might, as you parents might be. What, do you, what should I do? Um, but for legal reasons, you probably can't discuss <laughs> with the parents if the kid says, my parents don't know. Maybe a conversation with them, with, with these kids, would be why, just you know, calmly and kindly, why haven't you talked to your parents? More than likely, the response will be, because I know they'll hate me, they'll turn against me, they won't understand. A follow-up question, why do you think your parents would reject you or not understand? Well, because all my friends on social media who are in this situation say the last thing in the world to do is tell your parents. And um, but my, my goal here is to move them to actually have a conversation with their parents without the wrongful expectation, in most cases, that their parents are going to reject them. That, that's, yeah. If someone has a different approach, go for it. Lisa. Stand up. I'm a school social worker. School social worker, okay. Yes. So Can you turn around and you, you preach? No. Yeah. yeah. Spider-Man. She was still who she was. And so 
even though I have kiddos that on paper their name is Micah, but they call they go by Siren now, that kiddo was created by God yeah. and loved by God. And I can call whatever name they choose. That does not choose who they innately are. And I just love them for who they are. I avoid pronouns. Okay. Yeah. Because I don't want to affirm that. Yeah. Whatever name you want to be called, okay, you're still God's kiddo. Yeah. Whether you recognize him or not. Um, and avoid using pronouns. Yeah. Thank you. Let's keep going. Let's think about people who are wrestling with their gender, so experiencing gender uh, dis dysphoria or gender incongruence. Probably they have never engaged in a conversation that helps seek to um, heal them or help them deal with the pain and dissonance that they, their feelings about their body don't match their body. Uh, I think very few people engage in these conversations um, about the pain that they're going through, the dissonance between their feelings and their body, leading them to embrace the gender, the body, and the givenness of their sex uh, as designed by God. So knowing that uh, they've probably never had a deep conversation, be approachable for such conversations. I think a very high compliment would come from a student or an adult who says, I know I can trust you. Can I share something with you? Um, that means that you are a welcoming, compassionate person, and they feel safe with you. They, want, they trust you. And again, for me, the starting point needs to be the, these biblical, theological groundings, this foundation even though it doesn't make the conversations any easier. Um, and that doesn't mean, like with your students, uh, you probably can't share scripture with them. It doesn't mean you can't help them from a biblical worldview with the foundation that they're God's kids, created in divine image as a boy or a girl, a man or a woman, with that starting point, help move them to deal with the pain and the suffering, you want to move them in the direction where they affirm their gender as what they are biologically. Typically, and, and I, I'm cautious here because there are many exceptions, typically they are teenage girls who are socially awkward, outliers in their schools, often anxious, and or depressed, and they're striving for, they're seeking, they're starving for relationships. That's, it's a typical profile, there are many exceptions. Once they come out as transgender, they experience adulation and applause, especially on social media. They experience acceptance, encouragement, recognition, and they're starved for that. Again, statistics show that from 80 to 90% or so of children experience gender incongruence sometime in their adolescent uh, years. But they lose those feelings by the time they pass through puberty and enter into adulthood. Again, about 98% of boys and 88% of girls once going through puberty accept their biological sex. Again, those are statistics. They can provide some hope for us, but our hope is not that they're one of the good statistics. Our hope is in the Lord to change them. How should the church respond? I'm gonna divide this into some unhelpful things that the church can do and some helpful things that the church can do. Some unhelpful things. One unhelpful thing is to stereotype masculinity and femininity according to fundamentalist, hyper-conservative Christian cultural norms we might call patriarchy. I talked to one of you at break. This was her experience um, to the point where 
when she graduated high school and went to attend college, her church was shocked because women, stereotypically, according to this church, don't go to college. They don't pursue further education. Why would they? It's a waste of time. We need to avoid stereotyping things like that. According to Nancy Percy, it's precisely those rigid stereotypes that drive gender non-conforming young people into the arms of the transgender communities in their search for a sense of belonging and acceptance. We don't want to push, we don't want to foster our kids moving in that direction by our stereotyping, hyper-conservative, fundamentalistic uh, 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 maleness and femaleness, stereotyping masculinity and femininity. Second unhelpful thing, do not support their request for hormone treatment and sex-affirming uh, surgery. Don't support the request for hormone treatment and sex reassignment surgery. Such procedures permanently mar their body, render them sterile, and ultimately don't solve the problem. Moreover, I think it will come back to haunt them and us when their level of exhaustion for living as transgender people reaches the point that they want to desist or detransgender, return to their original sex, and they will wreak havoc on parents and doctors and counselors and psychologists and churches who are complicit in their now-denounced transgender experiment. We do not want to support that at all. Third, another unhelpful thing, don't place transgender people in the category of irredeemable sinners. And don't treat them as posing a danger to church members. Gender dysphoria, transgenderism is not a contagious disease. So, and they are not irredeemable. Jesus Christ has shed his blood and resurrected for all human beings and no one is outside the reach of his grace. Some helpful things for the church to do, weep for people who experience gender incongruity, who as a result struggle to find purpose and meaning in their life. They stand at a distance from their divinely designed embodiment. They view their body as negative, and is a limitation on their authentic identity. They reject their maleness and femaleness as God-givenness for the flourishing of human society. So compassion, Jesus-like compassion for their dilemma, dilemma is appropriate. They are real people, divine image bearers, suffering real pain, and they will destroy their lives together if they continue on that path. So we welcome them but we don't affirm their move towards transgenderism. We welcome without affirming. We do that with anyone anyway, right? We welcome them. Come to our church. Hear the gospel. Come into Bible studies and, and let us talk to you about Jesus. But we will not affirm whatever it is sinful in your life. Uh, secondly, what the church can do is embrace a spectrum of masculinity and femininity to prevent men and women who don't fill, fit the traditional notions as feeling that they must be the wrong sex. And so they seek uh, transgenderism as a solution to their feelings. Again, we don't want to so stereotype uh, masculinity and femininity, particularly in roles that we drive people away because they don't conform. Uh, an example of this, how many of you read or seen the movie Hidden Figures? Okay, African-American women engaging in advanced mathematical computations using a slide rule. Many of you don't have any idea. That's, that's the early form of computer. <laughs> that's what I grew up on, right? Uh, using slide rule, they were engaged in advanced mathematical computations, inventing math to put a man on the moon. Now, generally speaking, uh, men have higher developed capacities for those advanced mathematical computations. We find many more men doing those and uh, having jobs in those areas. 
This does not mean, does not mean that those women were men or that they were acting as men or that they were manly women. No, they were women who were, uh, uh, who were very capable doing these advanced mathematical computations. Yes, those abilities are found more among men than women, but the spectrum is that, such that they are women uh, doing these mathematical computations and they're not men. So we need to understand there's a spectrum. Is there a line that one, we, we can cross? I've already talked about that. Yes, hard to say exactly where it is, but I think there is a line. Next to last, we need to work with people who are wrestling with their gender identity and considering transgenderism. We need to help them accept who and what they are. Boys or men, girls or women, with their identity corresponding to their biology, to their body. And we should remind them the entire range of these human capacities and human properties, those are common capacities and common properties for both women, men and women. Last, be prepared to care for and support them even long term. And come to grips with the possibility that they may never be completely restored to wholeness in this lifetime. This is not a simple solution. This is not an overnight success. God may intervene and do that, but in many cases it takes many years, maybe even many decades. Are we as a church, are we as believers, willing and able to walk with them for the long term to help them? Even then, because they have suffered gender dysphoria, maybe gone through transgender surgery and all, they may become compassionate and capable ministers of the gospel to others who are suffering gender dysphoria and who have transitioned. So they are part of our ministry. A theology of human embodiment Focusing on the created and gendered body provides a theological foundation with which to address gender dysphoria, transgenderism, and the extreme measures, hormone uh, therapy, sex reassignment surgery, that are being employed today. Questions, comments about this? Yes, stand up. Yeah. Uh, the third being, uh, don't see them as unredeemable. Irredeemable sinner. Uh, yep. Right. And, and you, you mixed in this, this concept of contagious. Yeah. I'm a therapist. I yeah. Have a, a few folks that are working through uh, transsexuality and gender dysphoria. It, it's two part. One, there's the real dance that we have to do as professionals to keep us legally. In, in, a, in a healthy spot, ethically in a healthy spot, and continue to leave uh, the supremacy of our um, allegiance to Christ and his principles yep. above all of those things. Absolutely. Um, but in this spot of contagiousness, there's a lot of great evidence that suggests that uh, going with your question uh, about first world problem, there's a lot of evidence that it is a social contagion, much like um, uh, anorexia. Mm -hmm. um, where Absolutely. it yes. spreads as it gets more and more exposed, more and more people find that to be an adequate drug to deal with my depression and anxiety. I totally agree. So yes. I, I just don't know how to, uh, to do the dance of, no, it's, you're not going to catch it by sitting next to someone. Yeah. Like, like you would some horrible virus that was right. very contagious. But it is socially contagious. Yes. The more and more we normalize and put around us and say, oh, this is all okay by acceptance of just presence, not yeah. by verbiage. Yeah. We struggle with society grasping it more and more as we've seen this explosion. Just as you said, in, in the past decade, we would have never guessed. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm curious as to how we separate out the idea of con contagion as a social versus how do we make, how do we make our, our, our community aware of what it looks like to affirm a human being 
human being in Christ's image. Yes. But not from the craziness by saying, hey, whatever goes. Yeah, uh, very good. Rapid onset gender dysphoria right. is really a, a socially provoked phenomenon, isn't right. it? I totally agree with that. Right. So my point was the church, I'm not talking about individual, what does the church do? The church does not treat them as irredeemable sinners such that they come in and clearly it's a man be, be, trying to be a woman or vice versa. And in some churches, many churches, whatever, far too many, they're repulsed. We, we can't have those kinds of people in our church. Um, they don't even think about whether they're redeemable or not. It's just like, we don't want them because they will contaminate us. It's that kind of uh, response that I'm talking about. So, so the church welcomes them. Our, our church should have um, homosexual men, lesbian women, uh, uh, people suffering from gender dysphoria, trans people, pride, pride oh, we, right, we would be thrilled. We are thrilled when that reality is. And we preach the gospel and we teach the whole counsel of God. Um, and we welcome them, but we would never affirm their um, a heterosexual, or, sorry, homosexual attraction uh, or orientation or homosexual activity. Um, we would never say yes to transgenderism and all like that. We make that clear, but, but we welcome them. A couple years ago, a lesbian couple right in front, we have our service, they would be there, um, and they would be weeping as we preach the gospel and all like that, but they were very aware that we do not affirm their lesbianism, their relationship, they can't become baptized members of our church, right, until they would break from that lifestyle, that reality in their life. So just making, being very clear that we love the sinner but hate the sin, which is easier said than done, but we welcome but not affirm. Yes, stand up, yeah. So you have a girls group, yes. and one of your girls. Almost all of our groups are gender. Oh, all women you yes. Yeah. Like, all of the youth groups are gender. Could you create a co-ed youth group that would be particular for uh, girls and boys who want to minister to, and also for those who are struggling to come to? It would be a creation of a new structure. Wouldn't be boy group, wouldn't be a girl group, but a co-ed group for welcoming purposes. Stand up, Chase. Yeah. Trace, sorry, Trace. Yeah. First, I encourage them to, that their gender identity matches what they were, their, their biological sex. So they need to identify that as that and live out 
in this case, is a man, right? He transitioned. Uh, th- the question of rebuilding, let's see, did he go through complete sex re- yeah. Yeah. Docs, that's, it's very expensive. It will not fix anything, but the appearance will be there. Two doctors. Say, say, stand up. So, I mean, if, if he's a man, transitions to a woman, completely rebuilt, um, theoretically, maybe actually, he, he could have male genitalia again, but it won't work. I'll go with Dr. Elizabeth, case-by-case basis. <laughs> Let River continue and be even more Jesus-compassion-filled. And second, thank you for bringing us back to the gospel. Uh, let me pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have redeemed us through your blood, your death, and resurrection. Because no matter the kind of brokenness and sinfulness that was true of us, that is true of us, you have died and redeemed us. And you have declared us not guilty but righteous instead. You've caused us to be born again. You've adopted us into your family. You love us with an eternal love. We are eternally thankful to you. I praise you for this community, for the ability to have these conversations, for the welcoming but not affirming atmosphere that is here. May you continue to bless this church. Use it for the spread of the gospel, the planting of other churches, and reaching into the most dark places of this world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.